0: I remember watching the television and seeing the president lie about something that I knew actually was a a fact. I had a friend who was a gunner on one of the helicopters that went um, into Cambodia, had secret camps in Cambodia. He had been there and the president was saying we didn't have those uh, camps. And I'm of a generation still that was... I was completely breathless that our government would lie to us. I, I, I had no idea that that would ever happen. That sounds impossibly naive today, but really we went through that.
1: This is the Mirror of Antiquity, where we see ourselves in the study of the ancient world. I'm Curtis Docher.
0: These are all issues that are very closely tied with my interest in Herodotus and Thucydides, these two brilliant men, looking at the way culture works when you have a city or a larger cultural community in crisis. It was my way of staying sane and staying able to try to be a citizen, try to be engaged rather than just retreat into many of the retreats that our generation had available to us of drugs, or of sex, or of even of music. Uh, We had many ways of just blocking out what we saw as impossibly confusing. And for me, Herodotus and Thucydides were tremendously important also in helping me focus and understand and articulate things that were almost unbearable uh, at the time.
1: Today on the Mirror of Antiquity, Carolyn DeWald remembers what it was like to feel like the whole world was falling apart when she was in graduate school during the Vietnam War. The Greek historians Herodotus and Thucydides helped her understand what was happening and what she had to do. They also, as you will hear, helped her understand much of what has happened in this country since then and has given her a way to think about what she sees as the mixed legacy of the activism she engaged in during that war. Carolyn DeWald taught classics for 40 years, most recently at Bard College, and has published widely on the Greek historians that she'll be talking about on the program today, including the introduction and notes to the Oxford World Classics translation of Herodotus. She was active in the anti-war movement at the University of California, Berkeley, when she was a graduate student there in the 70s, a time of cultural crisis in the United States. While tens of thousands of human lives were being lost abroad, At home, we pitted ourselves against each other, a phenomenon that would not at all have surprised the authors that Carolyn has spent her career studying. Herodotus and Thucydides, the two great historians of classical Greece, each wrote about times of crisis for the ancient city of Athens. Herodotus, sometimes called the father of history, wrote an account of the rise of the Persian Empire and its two invasions of Greece in the first part of the 5th century B.C., The first invasion was led by the Persian king Darius, the second by his son Xerxes. Despite being vastly outnumbered, the Greeks turned back both these invasions. Thucydides, writing a generation later, was an eyewitness to the Peloponnesian War, a war which pitted Athens and its allies against Sparta and its allies. That war lasted more than 30 years, throughout the last part of the 5th century, and tore the Greek world to pieces. Carolyn's reflection on these texts, and her own life reading and thinking about them, demonstrates something that all great historians understand. That an event can mean one thing at the time it is happening, and a different, even opposite thing later. That the longer-term consequences of doing what is right at the time can be very hard to anticipate. And that the ancient Greek historians can be a powerful lens through which to examine not only the events that shape and reshape our world, but our own
0: roles in that process. Welcome. I came from a part of the country and a family that had no interest at all in the classical Greek and Roman past. Um, I grew up in the extreme Northwest. My early childhood was really on the Canadian border and then just before junior high school we moved to Seattle and I didn't have much relation to that past. But I had the great good fortune in the end of my junior year in high school to be part of a group of kids at Cornell University in the Telluride program um, to be exposed to these texts and also to people my age from different parts of the country, but especially the Northeast, who had been raised with these texts was just explosive to me to see how direct and smart about um, the human condition these very ancient texts were. It, it it was just astonishing. So I decided I needed to learn Greek. My mother tried actually to uh, make my father not pay for my tuition as a freshman at Swarthmore until I dropped Greek and took psychology because she thought it was so stupid. But um, I persevered. And I'm very glad I did. My father sat me down and interviewed me enough to, to be aware that for me, somehow, doing ancient Greek and Latin was going to be crucial for my sense of myself in the world. And therefore, I had the choice of studying it. If, if it was that important to me, and I thought about it that much, and it was crucial to my sense of myself as an individual. So in that sense, even though he didn't understand at all why I would want to do this, it was part of a, a sense of justice he had and a, sense of a deeper sense of American freedom that he would give me, even though he, he really assumed that I would be a housewife. He thought if I really wanted to be a housewife who read Greek, well okay, I had the right to do that. In fact, my brothers were forced to go to the University of Washington because they would need to have business connections, and he said, this is the last point. You'll have freedom in your life. You will be without the kinds of freedom that men exercise, so you can go anywhere in the country. And I chose to go to the Northeast because I... and In fact, I chose to go to Swarthmore because... A friend of my parents who taught at the University of Washington, uh, Professor Rosenmeier, said, well, the best education, this kid wants to do Greek, the best education is going to be at Swarthmore because of Martin and Helen.
1: Martin and Helen were the classical scholars Martin Oswald and Helen North. Both made a lasting impression on Carolyn. Ostwald with his theory of Greek freedom in relation to cultural traditions, and North for her demonstration of the possibility of a freedom for women that went far beyond what Carolyn's father had imagined for her. Each was concerned with navigating those times when freedom and tradition come into conflict, a tension which is never more acute than when we are called to be citizens, to be active participants in our own culture, in ways that require contradicting the dominant culture's values. Both Oswald and North talked about this in their scholarship and modeled it in their lives.
0: These two individuals, they they taught from the point of view of people who had lived through the Second World War. And Martin had himself uh, grown up under Nazi Germany, had intended to be a lawyer. His family were bourgeois, very well-schooled, well-accepted family who, uh, because it was Jewish, uh, ran athwart the authorities and he and his brothers, he and one brother, were allowed to go to Canada and he ended up, you know, getting a degree in classics and teaching as an eminent historian. One of the remarkable things about Martin was his magnanimitas. He he had such a great heart, and he spent no time at all resentful about the terrible um, past, his family's past, and uh, the past of Nazi Germany. He just wasn't interested in um, resentful or small-minded particulars. He was he was really interested in the vision he he saw of especially American culture. He loved American culture. He loved learning slang words and would use them with great glee. Fascinated by American nomoi, seeing the promise in them. Helen was important to me for very different reasons. Um, I didn't know as a college student in the mid-sixties that I would have to earn my own living. I I wanted to do Greek just because I thought it was so incredible, and I needed to do it. I didn't know why I needed to do it, but I needed to do it. Helen was my first exposure to a professional college professor who was a woman who was fully um, feminine in everything she did. She dressed exquisitely. She prepared brilliantly, and she was able to be both delightful and completely professional. That was something that was very hard for my generation. I had to learn in graduate school, actually in in very embarrassing ways, not to behave exactly as my male professors had behaved, because it was very frightening for the students to see a 25 or 30-year-old woman acting as though she was a 60-year-old man. And I had to think back to how Helen had negotiated being a woman but also being a professional teacher with high standards who could impose discipline on a class in ways that were different from the way somebody with a tie and a jacket could do it. If you think of Athena in the Odyssey and the way she uh, stands over Odysseus but lets him make his own mistakes. Helen Helen perfectly to my mind embodied that characteristic and I did it much less elegantly than she did. I envy you incidentally. All of you male professors, you have no idea how powerful that tie and jacket are. And you should never give it up. That's how i playing I know of my some mistakes. But
1: all that I've learned has
0: make Both of them were teaching classics as part of a, of a deeper sense of liberalism and of the rule of law as something that they had experienced in their own lives as, as a truth that needed to be at the heart of what they did. So I was, I was very, very fortunate to have uh, both brilliant philologists and, and human beings not afraid to connect classics to larger issues of uh, culture and law and tradition and value. They weren't ever preachy, and they didn't talk much about their own lives, but it illuminated everything they did. Uh, Martin's book, From Popular Sovereignty to the Sovereignty of Law, uh, was just a revelation to me when I was able to read it. Um, this is obviously many years after I was in an undergraduate because it just it, it, it explained his passion for even in beginning Greek starting with the idea of nomos. It was a, a very very important concept for him. It means both law and custom and customary law that is not able to be legislated away, what is the idea of a of a law slash custom that a culture will integrate so deeply that it's just part of the way they behave? The nomoi are those uh, hard drive laws that keep a culture what it is. There's other words for kinds of law that uh, that you vote on or that become inscribed in the things you put up in the Agora. You have to distinguish between the the basic nomoi that you give allegiance to and the 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 edict that the city promulgates that can be voted out. Your nomoi are the things that you act in loyalty to that you act out of your nomoi. It's not what you say as much as what you do. And the idea of the Greek citizen inside his city, and it always, of course, was his in in those days, but the individual in his city was embodying the nomoi of that culture in his actions. Are you doing things that will support your culture in its capacity to preserve, defend the freedom of the individual citizen and the freedom of the state as a whole. That's something that fascinated both Thucydides and Herodotus and the way they chose to give priority to individual action as leading to cultural large massive cultural change. It's not an accident that history came up in the fifth century BCE, a point when two brilliant men saw these wars that they were writing about as leading to huge changes in the way the world worked. And what fascinated them was the way individuals' choices led to huge cultural choices that led to change. They needed to write down what it was that led one thing to leading to another thing so that the whole world changed. How do, you, how do you actually set it down and give due weight to each part of the picture and each individual whose choices led to actions that had consequences? It's not an obvious thing. It's something that really came out of this particular culture and its set of nomoi. That's the vision of history that we continue to act on, but it is these two men who have given it to us.
1: Every time you make me. How does a culture preserve itself? And how does a culture make progress? These two things are often, maybe always, at odds. The nomoi that make us who we are, and the individual citizens who feel, who know, we need to become something else. How does a culture change itself to survive without obliterating what it was? How did a group of disconnected and self-interested ancient Greek cities lacking a tradition of collaboration, figure out how to unite to oppose the invasion of a massive foreign army? How in the next generation did they attempt to preserve themselves when a new war of Greeks against Greeks engulfed their so briefly unified world? Herodotus and Thucydides tell these stories in their histories. And as Carolyn says, they pay attention to the individual choices of many men. But in their tellings, at least, these men are usually the kings. The generals, the ambassadors and high priests, the leaders, those with power. Their choices are important, but the preservation of Nomoy depends on the choices of all the participants of a culture, whether they choose to preserve them or to try to alter them. And these individual choices can change a culture. I teach in a department where more than half of the faculty are women. My dissertation advisor was a woman. The chair of my department in graduate school was a woman. But it wasn't always this way. How did these women, coming up like Carolyn in the 70s and 80s, learn how to be professors of classics when the previous generation and their namoi offered so few models? How did Helen North figure out how to do it a generation earlier? It required changing namoi and discovering new ones, which is always hard work, the hardest work a culture can do.
0: I was born right after the Second World War, and we were a group of people who were overthrowing a lot of the nomoy that our parents thought normal. And when everything was up for grabs, you didn't yet know any of the dire consequences of taking certain illegal drugs or, to use a much more trivial example, but refusing to wear a hat and gloves when I went to church or went downtown. Uh, my parents were equally shocked by both things. It just, my grandmother refused to make clothes with me when I announced that I was not going to wait for Paris to tell me how long our hemline should be. It was so distressing to her that we were not, we were willing to throw up for examination lots of things that for them had meant culture. Men not wearing hats. John Kennedy, when I was in high school, shocked everybody by not. Wearing a hat to his inauguration it was it was appalling and it for my parents' generation, it led to much deeper uh frightening uh, abuses of of what it meant to be human that you weren't going to follow the the law or the custom exactly as your parents had followed it so the Vietnam War came very closely on the heels of all these changes, and that's why I became a historiographer, was was really to um, be able to understand why it was that we were, my generation was heading in a collision course with our government. We were seeing a government that just did not... Uh, behave according to the principles that we thought, the nomoi, that we thought our country represented and had brilliantly shown to be true and real and functional in the Second World War. We really did think we'd made the world better for democracy. That our parents' generation had fought the nasty enemy and that we wore the white hats. And then all of a sudden we were not wearing the white hats. And my friends were dying. And I was so aware for the first time of the radical asymmetry between a woman's life and a man's life. I was not subject to the draft. My brothers were. My friends were. And several of my friends went off to Vietnam and died. Others, uh, uh, two or three others who had been very close to me, never did come out of the drug addictions and PTSD that they had when they came back. There was a whole generation of people shattered. It also made me aware for the first time of class distinctions in the US. When we looked at the draft there was a very great difference between the men my age whose parents had enough pull that they did not end up going to Vietnam Um, and the people who you know had parents who couldn't afford to send them to college and ended up in the military in a very brutal um, war. It, it 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 was a real visceral phenomenon, and that's where I turned to Thucydides. The Classics Department at Berkeley, uh, with the leadership of uh, John Dillon, was we were one of the most active departments in the anti-war movement. And we <laughs> took a, a table out to Livermore where we tried to promote peace candidates. And we would we would sign up for various days, so I think I went two days a week. I wore my nicest church-going clothes and my hair in a bun. So I, I wanted to look harmless, and I was trying to pass out leaflets about peace candidates. And people with... Um, cameras were coming around, and I just thought they were the local throwaway newspaper, whatever the newspaper was, and it turned out I had a long FBI file, and there was a number you could call to see if your phone was being tapped, and it would give a certain noise, and mine was. I was just a kind of uh, clueless. I was a clueless person trying to, to do what I thought a citizen should do, in stopping this grotesque war that was draining all our resources and turning different parts of the country against each other. I can remember where I was waiting for a a march to begin when I read um, the chapter on Corsaira, book three in in chapter eighty and following.
1: Carolyn is referring to Thucydides' description of the civil war on the Greek island of Corsaira. Corsaira was originally a colony of Corinth, but had revolted from that city many times throughout its history. It had also founded its own colony at Epidamnus. As in many places in the Greek world, there was conflict in Epidamnus between the ordinary citizens, who called themselves Democrats, and the aristocracy. The Democrats of Epidamnus asked Corsaira to support them in their struggle, and Corsaira declined. The Delphic Oracle then told the Democrats of Epidamnus to seek support from their grandmother, namely Corinth, who, you remember, had originally colonized their mother, Corsaira. Corinth's intervention in Epidamnus led to a renewal of conflict between Corsaira and their old enemy, Corinth. And when Corinth allied itself with Sparta... Corsaira accepted an alliance with Athens which led to war between Corinth and Athens and so hastened war between Athens and Sparta. These alliances then fueled class conflict in Corsaira itself because Athens tended to lend support to uprisings of ordinary citizens in order to obtain allies against Sparta. And Sparta supported the oligarchs in these same conflicts. In the case of Corsaira, Athenian support for the ordinary citizens enabled a purge of oligarchs in Corsaira and bloodshed that was shocking even in the context of this brutal period of history.
0: In book three, Thucydides talks about a revolution that is taking place on the island of Corsaira, off in the Ionian Sea to the west of Greece. It's particularly interesting because uh, it was a nasty regional squabble on the part of Corsaira and Epidamnus that actually had led to the beginning of the Peloponnesian War. In in book one, he brilliantly talks about how that very local and kind of trivial fight sucked all the different Greek cities into the massive war that lasted for twenty seven years. But in book three it's come to a particularly violent head where the Democrats and the oligarchs in Corsaira are killing each other and the Athenians are sitting offshore and just watching them murder each other. And then he talks about how the situation in Corsaira was one that went that spread to the rest of the Greek world and he he analyzes it in terms that just resonated so profoundly to me in the early 70s. May I read a couple of sentences is that and then right. translate it? He says that um, this is starting in uh, chapter 82 To such excesses of savagery did the revolution go, and it seemed the more savage because it was among the first that occurred, for afterwards practically the whole Hellenic world was convulsed. I'm going to skip now, and there fell upon the cities on account of revolutions many grievous calamities, such as happen and will always happen while human nature is the same, but which are severer or milder and different in their manifestations, according as the variations in circumstance present themselves in each case. For in peace and prosperity both states and individuals have gentler feelings, because men are not then forced to face conditions of dire necessity. But war, which robs men of the easy supply of their daily wants, is a rough the translation says schoolmaster, but I'm going to talk about that, and creates in most people a temper that matches their condition. I'm going to read the Greek for that. orgas ton polon homoyoi. So war taking away the euporion, or ease of access to uh, material goods, the daily uh, access to material goods, is a de didaskalos, is a violent teacher, but it also means a teacher of violence. So war is both something violent itself and training people in, in violence, and it... Equalizes the orgas, the orge, the the um, emo- the violent emotions, tone polone of most people, according to the present circumstances. So people's um, habitual nomoi degenerate under the press of war, and I was seeing that just daily. I was seeing the fear of the older generation toward my generation. The violence that we as a country were perpetrating on another country, um, not leading to the effects that we would want. Um, I saw all of that, Thucydides really got it cold. It, It was a profound moment.
1: So the war prompted Carolyn's generation to review the Nomoi. But war also makes it so hard, even impossible, for a culture to modify its Nomoi without violence and other problems, just as Thucydides said. Which brings Carolyn to another thing the ancient historians perceived, which is that we are loyal to our Nomoi. Our Nomoi are comfortable. We don't want to see them changed. It's so hard to see the value of other possible Nomoi. Herodotus understood this, as he shows in his description of the Persian king Cambyses' conquest of Egypt.
0: The capacity to think of other people as having nomoi of their own that are just as important to them as yours are to you is something that over and over again these two historians accept at the heart of their narrative. It isn't even something they are questioning, and they're certainly not getting on a soapbox and giving you sermons about it, but it, it's embodied in everything they do as narrators. This is in Book 3, Chapter 38. Herodotus just talked about Cambyses as a Persian king who outrages the customs of Egypt, the country he's just conquered. And he he goes on about how Cambyses must have been mad because everybody knows you don't try to subvert or scorn other cultures, um, especially when they're, part of heroisi and nomai oisi, that is, sacred things and things having to do with nomoi. Then he goes on, if anybody put before people to pick out, ordering them to pick out the laws, the nomoi, the most beautiful ones from all the nomoi, from all the cultural laws or conventions, each man um, looking would choose his own for everybody thinks that his own nomus, his own laws, are Callistus, are the most beautiful of all. And I think that was was just a, it was something that helped me understand why the generation before ours was just so hateful in not being able to hear what we were saying, but also why we were so clumsy in our Responses, because I believe that the generation that I was part of actually brought a kind of reactionary response that has dogged us ever since. Because we were so unskilled at respecting our parents' deep belief in their nomoi, we just we just thought we should get rid of them, and we didn't understand that that that's not what you do with nomoi. Nomoi are the things that you, that are almost unconscious and that you fight to the death to preserve. We, we watched various cultural assumptions crumble under the weight of our collective refusal to take our parents no more seriously. So there's a, there's a basic um, goodness there. We were willing to take risks and do things that other people had told us not to do. And I still think we were right to do what we did. But I think the consequences have been very, very mixed. One of the fascinating things Thucydides says at the end of Book 1, he says the truest cause of the war, having gone through a number of causes of why the Peloponnesian War happened, he says the truest cause of the war was the fear that the Athenians generated on the part of the Spartans the Lacedaemonians and that I think is something that I can use to talk about the transformations to the right of our country as a result of the radical politics that my generation practiced because I think we generated a fear on the part of people who were um, not willing to go as far as we were in resisting the government or, or trying to subvert some of the things that um, our national politics were putting in place, we generated a fear and even a hatred of what we were doing that has led to some very scary consequences in terms of hardening political positions when the Bard students were were deciding that the way to show their displeasure at George W. was to go and have a sit-in at the main light in Red Hook in rush hour. I I said, if there's one thing I can tell you, it's that we brought Reagan on the national stage. You know, it was really the anti-war movement and the fear people had of the anti-war movement that brought him both as governor of California and then as president. And that's something that Herodotus and Thucydides understood. They really saw how dangerous it would be to um, go into someone else's cultural conventions and try to subvert them or try to dismiss them. And yet we've seen over and over again in the last 40 years of our American inability to take that truth as seriously as it needs to be taken. The most notorious example of this is Xerxes' thinking as he started the war against Greece in 481. It didn't occur to him to go and examine the culture or the material conditions that his troops were going to confront. Even though he had the largest army and navy and the most skilled warriors, and as Herodotus says, equally brave to the Greeks themselves, his his whole campaign that takes up books seven through nine of his histories failed because of his inability to take seriously the facts on the ground that were confronting him, both human and material. Um, he had no sense that the Greek body armor was going to render his own very courageous warriors' efforts at fighting in Plataea ineffective. He he just had no interest in that. He just thought because of the immense wealth and immense numbers of warriors he could bring, that, that he would, of course, win the war. And he failed miserably. That's something Herodotus is using, I and many other people feel, as a, as a sort of warning to Athens, a warning that Athens didn't heed in the middle of the 5th century. The war in Iraq, George W. was exactly doing what Xerxes did. It was uncanny. There's the young, ambitious king who wants to be better than his father. There's the uh, nobles who only are looking at their own career and how to defend it. There's the contempt and refusal to look carefully at the situation on the ground that would have allowed them to make some more informed decisions because they were trusting in the magnitude of their own military. Uh, Many, many parallels that were just uncanny. And to do it, of all things, against Iraq? I mean, what, what an irony that, that we, we, were, we were the Persians. One of the things I love best about Herodotus is you'll read along in a story that's got a very clear moral trajectory to it, and then all of a sudden at the end he blows it up and shows you a completely different way of looking at it. For instance, in book one, you get the story of the birth of Cyrus and how his grandfather, the wicked king of the Medes, had tried to destroy him because of a dream he had been shown that his daughter's child would uh, take on the kingship. So he tries to have the baby murdered, and through a set of remarkable events, Cyrus is saved. He grows up thinking he's the son of a, a shepherd out in the wilderness but is discovered, is brought back in, is reunited with his birth parents. And then he, he ends up, because of a man angry at his grandfather for cruelty, he ends up uh, conquering his grandfather. And when the king of the Medes is standing there in chains, the, the man who had helped Cyrus subvert, well, destroy the Medes, comes up and gloats at the wicked old king who had tried to kill his grandson. And the king looks at Harpagus, the the Mede who had helped Cyrus, and says, I was willing to kill my grandson so that the Medes would be safe, and you, for the sake of a personal animosity, have given away the sovereignty of your people. So all of a sudden, the wicked old king is shown to have been willing to sacrifice his own family for the sake of the people, where Harpagus, the man who, who has been brutally wronged by the king, is shown to be self indulgent. Doesn't mean the king is right, doesn't mean that Astyages is right, but all of a sudden you see wait a minute, there was a point there. And, and over and over again, Herodotus will do that. He'll, he'll, he'll show you that your set of assumptions about the story are imperfect and that there's this whole other set of agendas that needed to be taken seriously. My love,
1: blood, blood. It's Herodotus understood that there are many possible perspectives on historical events, and that the passage of time may change the way those events are understood. It's that critical, even self-critical method that can prompt us to turn our attention to our own involvement in history, as Carolyn has. She has already observed how Thucydides' description of the revolution in Corsaira fit what she observed in this country during the Vietnam War. Another part of his account of Corsaira rang true to her as well, that violence led to a distortion and even perversion of language.
0: Thucydides really did describe not just the behavior of the oppressive other, but our behavior as well. That was very hard to take. As a woman, it was very hard for me to see that I would not have a voice unless I was sleeping with somebody who was a major male player in the uh, in the movement. I can read a little bit more. The ordinary acceptation of words in their relation to things was changed as men saw fit. Reckless audacity came to be regarded as courageous loyalty to party prudent hesitation as specious cowardice, moderation as a cloak for unmanly weakness, and to be clever in everything was to do naught in anything. Frantic impulsiveness was accounted a true man's part, but caution in deliberation a specious pretext for shirking. That is, if you wanted to be prudent and ask the other person what they had in mind and try to build a bridge between you, This was just a sign of your cowardice. This was just showing that you were unfit to be part of your cohort. And I I saw that all the time in the anti-war movement. I saw that people who were most interested in, in being hostile rose in our movement to positions of power where people who were willing to build bridges and try to achieve some kind of understanding with either the city government of Berkeley or the university uh... and it's beleaguered administrators were were despised it not always but it 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 very much led people to be leaders who were the least temperate and the least capable of listening to what might be good i had a very close friend um, another classicist judy ginsburg was part of the initial sit-in at berkeley and she was arrested and hauled off to jail and she told me there were four of them at one point giving speeches on the on the steps of Sproul Hall, and only one of them was a shouter, was somebody who was ranting and raving, and he was the only one whose speech was put on the national news. The others were really trying to explain why it was that it was important to um, do civic resistance uh, using Martin Luther King's ideals, and the only person who was was given a prominence was the guy who was the out-of-control, goofy, long-haired shouter. And that has over and over again been the case. That, that the person, just as Sucedi said, said, the person who's willing to see the other side, who's willing to try to communicate, gets drowned out in the um, desire to have it all be exciting, to have it all be scary because that's what creates money for the national media. I don't know if it could have gone another way given how naive my generation was about the power of the media and the way that the media were interested in showing something as exciting slash uh, terrifying as possible rather than showing the ways in which we were trying to be honorable, civic-minded people. I had no sense of the use the media were making of our efforts to raise alarm and even fear on the part of my parents' generation. I saw twice, as I was waiting for the library uh, to open it, I would sit out on the lawn and read my Thucydides until the library opened, and I saw a man with one of the three network cameras on his shoulder giving money to what was a street person or a scruffy student and I I never thought about this until much later that the marches that we tried very carefully to monitor and we had people picking up trash and we had people believing that we should act respectfully and yet there would always be a picture on the national news of somebody throwing a rock into a store window and having it shatter and I didn't connect those two things until years later I did not see that this was really entertainment, that that there was a part of our national media investing in making us look as dangerous and out of control as possible. Have you seen my anchor boy? He flew south, he said it had no choice. Went to where the good news blows, like the bad news blows down here. Have I think our culture doesn't understand that cultures can die. That's one of the things I really try to deal with as I teach. I teach two extraordinary cultures, and one of the things I teach is why they died, why they went away. Now, they transformed into other things that eventually grew up, but um, there, there are choices a culture can make that will end it. The Greeks struggled with what it meant to have a culture. Each city was so small. The biggest cities had 30,000 male citizens in them who would fight for the city. So 120,000 people was an enormous conglomeration. You had a face-to-face culture where you understood what had to go into making that culture available to everybody in it. And if it wasn't, the culture often failed. you you would end up with a tyrant who was supported by the people who didn't have enough material goods. I mean, this is obviously a a cliché, and it's not entirely true, but the idea of a tyrant then entering into wars that the city might fight and lose. And if your city lost a war, you could end up enslaving your entire culture. One of the things that happened to Miletus the Greeks in the east, that is, on what's now the west coast of Turkey, were trying to overthrow their Persian uh, monarchs in the 490s, and they failed. They, they lost the war, and as Herodotus says, the, the men were all killed. The boys um, castrated and shipped off to be slaves, and the women and girls sold. And that could happen to any city. Any city could lose its entire identity, could, could disappear. Thebes disappeared at the hands of Alexander the Great. The only house he left standing was the house of a poet, Pindar. Um, you, You were taking your life in your hands if you chose as a city to enter into war with another city. And they knew it. And I'm not sure we know it anymore. Or if we are being greedy about it, if we're so interested in continuing our own material security, that we dismiss the nomoi of others and the need of others to be free, as we are free. The 5th century Greeks articulated a sense of the citizens' obligation to participate in the culture's reality that we need to regain. The freedom that the Greek citizen had was one of action on behalf of your community. It's the work of a citizen to embody the nomoi on a daily basis. You have to keep working them to make them nomoi at all. It it matters that you perform them. And that's where I think our performance of nomoi is increasingly one that doesn't allow for a shared understanding that we can trust. We're really always leaping forward into new places that leave large numbers of people destabilized and even out of the conversation. What does it mean that our nomoi today include a habitual resistance to honoring the past? and honoring past ways of doing things. We care about innovation so much. I don't think I ever listen to NPR without some person being described as an innovator or innovative new uh, either technology or ways of handling political problems or social problems. We're always talking about uh, new ways of doing things and that's something I, I respond to. And yet it frightens me sometimes. There's, there's a kind of frantic interest in, it's part of our basic nomos now, that we are innovators and we admire people who are risk-takers. Innovation and risk-taking as our basic articulation of what it means to be an American right now at this time. And we don't admire the old farts who are going to tell us, well wait a minute, there's some dangers involved in that. Let's really think about genetic modification before we plunge into it. Climate change, of course, is the most crucial thing that those of us who have children and grandchildren should be thinking about. I am very concerned that we are, uh, you know, the Johnny Mitchell song, but um, put up a parking lot, uh, that uh, we don't know what it's like till it's gone. Well, uh, gosh, I'm sounding like a real old fart. I'm, I'm, I'm very. I've, I'm trying to be honest here, but it's. I'm aware of how very uh, <laughs> pathetic this sounds. Because I'm, I'm a, an older person now. Looking back at, you know, I'm part of a generation that never trusted anybody over 30, and I'm over twice that age. And it's a very humbling place to be. <laughs> I think the forty years that I've had the great good fortune to teach the Greeks and Romans, but to teach both Greek language, the Latin language, and then the histories of the Greeks and the Romans has given me a sense of some transformations in our culture as I see each new group of students coming in. In fact, I taught a summer program and there was a student from Turkey and a student from Kazakhstan. His father had been a Korean diplomat in Kazakhstan, so he was both Korean and part of Central Asia. And those two kids had the same jokes and the same set of musics as the students who were from the Midwest and from New Mexico that on a more ordinary conventional way showed up in the program. There's a way in which there's a universalism now that our students take for granted and it's a very exciting thing. What I see in the students of the last 10-15 years is an openness to each other that's quite extraordinary and that I have a great deal of hope for. And it's going to be possibly the way that we become part of one world where many different cultural expressions of nomos are allowed to coexist if we learn to listen to each other. The the notion of a nomos of learning to listen and take your view of yourself seriously, that you don't have to have the same view of yourself that I have of myself or that I have of what a self is, that's going to possibly lead to being able to treat people of other cultures with respect and to be interested in them and to co-inhabit. We're going to all be in a soup together that's going to require that openness and require that ability to talk to each other that I think our younger generation really does have. What are the things that are non-negotiable and then what are the many things that really aren't at base, no moi, but only safe isma, only, only our local habits that we can um, transform or jettison if we have to. I think those are basic questions that the kids growing up right now have to solve. They must figure out how to do that, and I hope they do it in a way that's more skillful than the way we did. Quiet, but confident, that's Made some and all that I've learned has
1: from getting I has come
0: make
1: you proud. And the Mirror of Antiquity is produced by me, Curtis Dozier, and Lucy Rosenthal, with the support of the Vassar College Department of Greek and Roman Studies and Academic Computing Services. Our recording engineer is Baynard Bailey. Emma Schulte designed our logo. Music on today's episode from Norm Core, Josh Armistead, Pisces, and the Rope River Blues Band. Visit us at our webpage, mirrorofantiquity.com, or follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Mirror Antiquity. If you like the show, please leave a review on iTunes or share it with your friends on social media. Thanks for listening.